0: The first Nitro edition of What Happened When Monday is brought to you by 1FMC.com. When you're getting ready to buy your next house, why not deal with somebody you know, me, Conrad Thompson and First Family Mortgage. We're happy to hook you up. If you're already a homeowner, well, we can get you a better deal on your current home. If you're in a 30-year loan, what are you waiting for? You're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not even realize it. Maybe you've got some debt you'd like to get rid of, a second mortgage, some credit cards. Wouldn't it be nice to get rid of a car payment? We can even show you how to skip your next two house payments. But maybe best of all you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this if we can't save you money we won't waste your time call the number one best in business call first family mortgage right now at 888-425-0105 check us out online and get a quick quote right now at 1fmc.com although i'm here in huntsville we're licensed in 21 states i'd be happy to help you save some money and if you've got any questions message me directly on twitter at hey hey it's conrad MLS number six five zero eight
1: four. This is the MLW Radio Network. 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 Network.
0: Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network. And the man of the hour, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, it's early. How long have you been blocking people so far today? I I've stopped blocking people.
1: I've completely stopped. I've completely stopped. And I noticed that you uh, you tweeted out uh, if you want to be on the list to be unblocked by Tony, uh, sign up here. And I checked those people out. And they they had never been blocked, so I think this thing of Tony blocking people may be a fallacy, maybe a figment of people's imagination. I'm blocking nobody anymore, although there are a couple of trolls,
0: and you know who you are, you'll never see the light of day. Uh, well, be sure to check out our pro wrestling tees <laughs> store later this week. Prowrestlingtees.com/whw. We have the Great American Blocked Party coming your way. You need to uh, celebrate the idea that Tony Schiavone fucking hates you personally, and has blo- has blocked you. Uh, I hate no one. I hate no one. Uh, I, just li- I, just, I just like I just I dislike a lot of people.
1: Okay, and I'll and many it. of those are in my extended family. Mm. But I I, I I hate no one. I well, love everybody. And, and you know what, Conrad? If I can borrow this from Bruce Pritchard, I love you too. <laughs>
0: Well, man, we uh, we had a fun show last week—the sold-out episode. I don't know that anybody loved that show, but yeah. I got surprisingly good feedback from that show. You?
1: Yeah, I, I did too. I think uh, the, the feedback that I got from uh, most of our uh, listeners was, you know, what that uh, that event really sucked, and you were right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, uh, the event really sucked because an all heel event is just really not going to work. And, and uh, again, that's Monday morning quarterbacking stuff, I know, but I would think so, that they're right.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm glad it's over. You know, that's not a show I ever want to watch ever again, sold out in 1997. We put lots of poll topics up this week, too, and the one you guys wanted to see barely edging out, uh, second place was the very first Monday Nitro. And stay tuned at the end of the program, and we're going to give you four brand-new topics to vote on. That poll is going to be up by the time you're hearing this. So cruise on over to at WHW Monday, and you'll see a poll pinned right to the top. We'd love to have your feedback. What do you want to hear about next week? But now let's talk about what happened when WCW created Monday Night Nitro. And before we get to September of 95, Let's sort of set the stage, uh, in early June, 95 Bischoff meets with Ted Turner and what has become one of the more famous Bischoff stories ever. Uh, this meeting apparently was ran by a name wrestling fans would hear a lot more of in the years to come, Mr. Harvey Schiller. And as a result of that meeting, Ted gives WCW a slot on TNT to present WCW opposing a WWF Monday night raw program on USA. So this is a big deal. And the announcement isn't made public for about a week. And uh, according to the Dirt Sheets, as they say, Vince McMahon is part of the reason this comes about. Because he had been sending Ted Turner letters urging him to fold WCW, claiming it was an embarrassment to Turner's good name. And keep in mind, around the same time, Vince is running Nacho Man and Huckster segments on his program, poking fun at WCW. Well, apparently, uh, old Ted's had enough. And he's decided that rather than fold, he wants to compete. So, Tony, were you in this now infamous meeting with Bischoff and Schiller and Turner?
1: No, I was not in the meeting, but uh, I knew Harvey Schiller quite well and uh, did not really know Ted. But here's the, here's the problem I have with that story. Uh, were reports that Ted was really, really ready to close the company prior to that? No, not at all. Was, it, was, it, was he taking these letters seriously from from uh, Vince McMahon? He
0: he he was annoyed, I believe, by the billionaire Ted skits, the Nacho Man, and the huckster skits, and then the letters from Vince saying just go ahead and close up shop. Um, I think all of that, you know, coupled with Bischoff maybe saying, "Hey, I can't compete because they've got prime time and I've got Saturday afternoon." Of course, they're going to win. I think that kind of lent itself to Ted saying, "You know what? Screw it. Let's just double down." At least that's the narrative that's been painted. But you don't believe that to be true.
1: Well, I I believe that. uh, I believe two things here. I believe when Eric took over the company, uh, and and I've used this before, and it's a well-worn term that people are probably freaking tired of. But I always thought Eric had a vision of making it bigger, and I always thought that Ted Turner. Would, loved wrestling so much and loved what wrestling had done to his company that he was always on board with with whatever idea, or not on, necessarily on board, but would always listen to whatever idea we would have to make it bigger and better. So uh, I think it was a combination of those two. Uh, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure that the letters by Vince uh, had anything to do with it. Do you remember it, hearing? It could, it could have helped him change his mind. Are those letters from Vince legit?
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, th- that's something that comes straight from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Uh, I-, I happen to believe more than I don't out of there. Bruce, on the other hand, thinks most of it is more fiction than fact. What right. say you? Had you heard about these letters ever before?
1: No, I had not. Uh, and some of the things that are on the "quote unquote" dirt sheets are—you know—it's all hearsay, right? Or it's all people reporting, and they could—they can report anything they want. I I just, to me, that just blows me away that he would send letters to him saying, shut down WCW. It is a uh, it is an embarrassment. That in itself, to me, would rile up Ted Turner enough to say, fuck you. We're going full bore. Yeah, those letters. So but whether they're true or not, I don't know. I was not privy to that.
0: Do you remember ever hearing whether or not Ted had a reaction to the billionaire Ted skits, you know, Nacho Man, Huckster, all that stuff? No, not at all. Um, Do you remember there ever being discussions prior to this about trying to compete with Monday Night Raw head-to-head, or is this really the first time you had ever even heard it?
1: Yeah, this is the first time I had ever even heard trying to compete with Monday Night Raw. And, uh,
0: uh, you know, it worked. Yeah, and we're and we're going to get into that. Bischoff it writes it in, changed the business. Bischoff writes in his book that when he first went back to his office at Titan Towers um, after Ted had given the green light, he called Craig Leathers and David Crockett into his office, and they were just as shocked as Eric, not even believing him at first. When did you first hear the news? And I'm curious what a guy like Crockett would have thought of this at the time.
1: Well, I think David Crockett was a company guy and would have been uh, shocked but would have been uh, ready to do whatever it takes. Uh, I heard about it after that. Uh, I was informed of it by Craig Leathers because I worked under Craig. Uh, and he told me what was going on and you know, told me that uh, – I, I believe he told me at that time that Eric would do the play-by-play, which didn't bother me one way or the other uh, because uh, – and then Eric talked to me about it. You know, I'm going to be doing the play-by-play because I think you're out there too much, which what I agreed. So I found out it found out about it through Craig. Uh, I don't think David had a problem with it at all. David, uh, you know, we David was removed from his own company business. He was a part of Turner. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at all the F- Crockett family, uh, Jackie, David, Francis, and Jimmy, David was the one that was most involved in the new company. More than more than the others. Uh, Jimmy was kind of behind the scenes, but David was involved more and longer than
0: anybody else. Uh, talking about the announcer spot, Bischoff wrote in his book, From the beginning, I planned to be on Nitro as the main announcer. Again, not because I wanted to be, but because I was the best option I had. I knew the edge right. and attitude I wanted to give the show, and it was easy for me to do, so I became the face of Nitro and relished the role. You don't take issue with that? No. Uh,
1: I guess what he's saying there that I wasn't cool enough to be on nitro. That's kind of what it sounds like to me. I wasn't hip enough to be on nitro. Sure. That's fine with me. So you didn't I feel,
0: up, you, I kind of ended up being hip enough to be on there. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, it sure did. But at that time you didn't feel overlooked or slighted not being involved.
1: I felt overlooked and slighted about not being involved in the production of it. Uh, and, and that, I was really concerned about that, and I had uh, I had uh, done a lot of work uh, with uh, with Worldwide, done a lot of work with WCW Saturday Night as a producer, but now I was completely on the outs production wise. I had no job backstage that I can remember. That's what I had took issue with, uh, and we were going straight ahead with a new a new product, and I had no. I had nothing to do with it at all. And I'm telling you, it's not by being because I wasn't the announcer of it. It's because I was not any producer. They would, uh, for a long time, when they would roll credits, which I always thought credits were crazy, but when they would roll credits, they would have my name as a producer on shows, not necessarily Nitro, but on pay-per-views. And then eventually they phased that out as well. Uh, But I I did take issue with uh, the fact that Craig... Uh, leathers was moving ahead and not including me in this at all, but announcing wise, hell's no, I had plenty to do. So there,
0: um, do you Um, think, do you think Eric thought it was natural for him to be in that position of the announcer? Since Vince was kind of in that spot on raw, or do you think that was even a consideration?
1: Uh, Probably so. I I think he thought that was natural to be in that position. And uh, I thought, again, if you're the boss of the company and you want thinking the way Vince thinks and thinking the way Eric was thinking back then, if you want things done right, you just do it yourself. Right. Uh, So that was probably uh, uh, a consideration that he had at that time.
0: One of the early rumors that drips out uh, in the newsletter is that the show – is considered, um or one of the names that were being considered rather was head to head did you ever hear that no not at all Uh, a lot of guys are starting to think that this is uh suicidal to go head to head with the wwf because at the time it's the highest rated wrestling show in the country and Meltzer even writes while the show amounts to the start of another avenue of a wrestling war uh, it also, if WCW can't draw in that time slot, maybe Bischoff giving himself enough rope to hang himself. Uh, no. Was that the no. general feeling about going head to head with Raw? That if this doesn't work, Bischoff's out because WCW had had a lot of turnover in that spot in the years prior. Is this viewed as it could be the nail in the coffin? No, I don't
1: think. I don't think so. I think Bischoff had done more than anyone had done in that spot ever. Right, Uh, Including bringing in Hogan. And I think if you look at the numbers that uh, we were on the upswing since the arrival of Hulk Hogan, so I don't think it was a nail in the coffin for Eric Bischoff. Uh, I I think it was viewed as a a, a risky move, but a move that we all thought would work. You know, Eric and I, uh, Conrad, and I'm thinking this was the day before, had lunch at a restaurant in... uh, in the Mall of America. And he said that he thought that there was a rating point out there of a five that could be split between the two companies, that we could get it on a consistent basis like a 3-1, and Vince could get like a 1-9. Uh, well, obviously it did much better business than that. But he went in into it looking to split that number that Vince was drawing, when in effect it it helped everybody. And um, the ratings certainly exploded after that uh, for both companies. So I think he was I think he went into it not thinking that he was going to conquer the world, but thinking that he would draw some of that number of viewers that regularly tuned into a Monday night wrestling event. Was it that risky for him? Sure, it was risky, but I don't think it was risky to the point to where they were going to say, "Okay, fuck you, take off. Because who else is going to run the company?
0: In the company, um, what's the general feeling about going head-to-head with Raw? Do you remember anybody specifically being for or against the idea? Uh, I don't remember anybody being against it that I talked to. I think we were all for it. I know we were all for
1: it. Uh, We wanted to compete. We wanted to see what we could do. And uh, I think we were all pretty excited about it.
0: So Bischoff believes this to be a little bit of a blank slate for Nitro since it's a brand new show. And he starts to utilize some of Turner's resources to do research for what wrestling fans enjoy watching. And uh, he feels that the research shows that the right combination or the right mix of pro-WWF and then pro-WCW and then something as a third component to get viewers who had long since given up on watching wrestling to tune back in would satisfy the appetite, and specifically what Eric says the research supports uh, is questions like, what do you like about professional wrestling? And the consistent answer he gets is something along the lines of, I like it when it's unpredictable. Uh, He wrote in his book that the words unpredictable and spontaneous popped up over and over in this research. Tony, you're an old-school wrestling fan. Do you agree with this research that unpredictability is paramount in wrestling?
1: I think it's a key opponent. Uh, unpredictability, uh, and I've always thought that I, you know, being an old school guy, I, I like to see good, solid matches. But yeah, unpredictability is is very important. You know, Eric was very very involved in that research. Conrad, uh, we had focus groups, I remember, and this was this was even before uh, Thunder or and Nitro. Uh, we had focus groups that I set in on and listening to people talk about what they wanted. And then Eric would go out and talk with him afterwards. Uh, And a lot of the things that they talked about was being spontaneous, being unpredictable. Uh, So, yeah, he's right. He's right about all that.
0: Uh, One of the other things that they um, start to discuss in some of the creative meetings with Bischoff is, as he lays out, he thinks WCW has three choices. Be better than, be less than, or be different than what the WWF was offering And he admits that as a startup show, uh, he doesn't think they can be better than, and he doesn't want to be worse than, so he's going to choose to be different than. And he asks, how can we be different than that? We go live. So Bischoff wrote in his book that he always wanted to go live with the show, but was worried that some of the production team would be intimidated by that, so he felt he had to pick the right time to share that info with them. Do you remember Mm -hmm. folks being worried about the concept of going live every week?
1: Yeah, no question. No question. Because of the the unpredictability of what you see on TV was mirrored by the unpredictability of what happened backstage. Right. Uh, and that unpredictability a lot of times would cause things to not go right. Now we're going to go live, and guess what? If you screw up, you got to keep going. Right. I know that was a concern. There was no question. And uh, it would also mean... I guess budgets would have to be thrown out because it would be a lot more expensive, obviously, to go live every week. Uh, you're talking about traveling to an event, doing an event live, on top of what we were doing already. There was also there was a concern, and it was heightened when we went to doing Thunder. There was a concern that we were understaffed, right? Uh, and that concern, uh, and I think we really we were, but I think eventually we got. We got staff, we had plenty of staff members, but at the first, there was a concern that we had enough people in place to do that.
0: I learned in my research that WCW tinkered with the idea of doing the show live every week, every other week, or even just once a month before ultimately deciding it was a worthy investment to have the competitive advantage against the WWF of going live every single week. Yeah. Um, I mean, that commitment to doing it every single week, which even at the time the WWF wasn't doing, is that probably the most daunting task WCW had undertaken with this management group? To go live every week? Yeah, 52 oh, live shows.
1: No question. There's no question. You, you don't realize what uh, going live takes out of you. as, And I'm talking about from a talent standpoint, but even a backstage standpoint. And right. how many people just to coordinate the show uh to make the show look correctly to make the show look right you just it's it's just uh it's a, it is a daunting task and and I know Vince realizes that as well of course you know he had been doing it it it's, it was kind of like this it was kind of like doing a pay-per-view every week
0: yeah and that's eventually what it became of course uh, and the yeah, decision sure. yeah. the, the but, dis-
1: but production wise it was doing a freaking pay-per-view every week I've said freaking twice and fuck once. As you can tell, I'm trying to cut down on my swearing because I have to go to mass and I have to go to confession on Saturday and say, bless me, Lord, for I have sinned. It has been a week since my last confession. I accuse myself of saying fuck too many times. So I'm just trying to cut down on the fuck.
0: You know, I'll tell you, I think uh, a pissed off Shivani is what's best for business. (laughs) for what it's worth. Um, You do? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Uh, WCW decided what was best for business is to not only be live every week, but to do a replay after as well. Tony, explain to fans the reasoning behind having a replay air the same night. The WWF never did this, and I know many fans are curious as to why WCW may have felt they needed one.
1: I I think it was a couple of things. I I think TNT wanted the programming. And I also think it was um, it was something different. it was it was uh, again, it was Eric trying to do something different than had been done. You know, eric had Eric had a lot of tr- tremendous ideas. He really, really did. And as you can see, they they kind of come through as we move on there. And I think the replay was a combination of, again, wanting programming uh, because as you know, they replay things on ESPN all the time just because they need content they need, the pro- they need the programming uh and eric just coming up with something brand new
0: uh, as time goes on i think people have maybe overlooked this but the lead-in for nitro was uh thunder and Para- paradise reruns with hulk hogan tony yeah. uh where does your thunder and paradise fandom rank amongst all your all-time favorite television programming
1: Okay, uh, here's what I know about Thunder in Paradise and where it ranks within mine. Uh, I put it right below episodes of The Bachelor.
0: Okay, so you're pretty high on The Bachelor?
1: And and anything that's running on uh, the learning channel. Uh, To me, I think, and unbelievably, The Bachelor is the worst piece of shit that's ever been on TV. (laughs) It is. I don't I don't give a flying fuck about these girls and about him. I don't keep it off my TV, but people flock to this shit. It's like the real housewives of Atlanta. I don't get I don't I don't care. I don't care because all that reality shit, Conrad, you may or may not agree, is phony anyway. It's all phony. What? Uh, it's all phony. Survivor my ass. It's all freaking phony. We set the standard <laughs> for that, okay? Uh, we were the reality show before reality shows. So Thunder in Paradise kind of ranks right below that piece of shit called The Bachelor.
0: So there you go. Do you, I, do you watch The Bachelor? No, I like chicks, man. It's a girl <laughs> there show. Some good, there's some good-looking chicks on there. Yeah, they got clothes on though, so. There you go. Well, hello, creep alert. I'm just saying.
1: Uh, All right. I Don't figured, blame me guys for being a creep. Oh, on that mo- on that note, guess who I talked to this week?
0: Wait a minute. Yes, I did. I feel like we need a breaking new sound effect right here. Deborah McMichael was on yes, the horn.
1: I, yes, I did. Well, do tell. I sent, I sent her a text and I said, Deborah, I just want to let you know. Uh and I was doing this as I was slobbering on my phone. Uh I <laughs> I said, Deborah. Just want to let you know, I don't know if you've heard anything about our new podcast, but it's it's going great. And one of the running bits on this is me uh, fawning over you and your boobs uh, and your puppies and how beautiful you are. But as you know, and I said this on the podcast, you are one of the most beautiful and nicest women ever. And she said, I am very, very honored that you even bring me up. Uh, and just to let you know about Deborah. She, in May, is going to get her master's in criminal justice from the University of Alabama.
0: Well, that way she'll be able to file her own restraining order against you, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's going to come in handy the next time. Uh,
1: and I wanted to say, okay, criminal justice is Alabama. The only thing you'll be uh, doing is defending people from trailers. But I didn't say that. And I wanted to just throw that out for you, Conrad.
0: Well I appreciate that.
1: No problem. Uh but anyway, uh so I did contact her, let her know what was going on. And uh well, well, so so he, there, I he, got her number. Do you have her number? Uh no. Yeah. So there, fella, I got her number. And I, she responds
0: to me. Go ahead. How far in the friend zone are you with Deborah?
1: Oh, very very much so. We are re- we're gonna be coming to Tuscaloosa. Uh, in a uh, in a couple of weeks, with you're Georgia coming basketball. to Tuscaloosa
0: or in Tuscaloosa
1: we're we're going to be in we're going to be on the capstone for Georgia basketball against Alabama, uh, and I believe it's coming up from when this this drops on Monday, and I believe it's going to be the following week. I'm not sure, maybe it's this coming week, but I got to get in touch with her because she wants to come to the game. Last time we were in Tuscaloosa, well, not last time, a couple of years ago in Tuscaloosa. I got her tickets for her and a couple of her friends, so we're we're very we're very very friendly. Why you ask?
0: I was just curious. I um, trying to start some shit on Twitter. Is that it? No, I'm not trying to start any shit on Twitter. I think you've done enough of that. I do like the idea <laughs> that you have learned in your old age how to pivot away from the heat. I mean, you're on here, and I don't think you knew that a quarter million people were going to hear her, hear you basically masturbate to Deborah McMichael's tits. And so then you're like, hey, it's a running bit. No, it's not a bit. You're a fucking psycho stalker, and you're trying to play it down like it's just for entertainment now that people have called you out on your shit. That's what's happened.
1: Okay. Let me write this. Up. Man, you, you were slicing and dicing me for about a 20-second span there. Uh, the only response I have to all that is, uh, go fuck yourself.
0: Okay. Deal. And now I feel like I, I mean, I want you to block me on Twitter. Let's just come full circle.
1: The, the only way I block people on Twitter, if you are a deadbeat, uh, a, a deadbeat troll. Here's Can I say something else about Twitter? Yeah. I love Twitter. Absolutely love it. Do you know why I love Twitter? Maybe the same reason that you do, but maybe not. And maybe for our listeners out there, here's why Twitter is great. You're out and you're about, and you're walking down the street, and you see a group of people. You cannot look at those people and pick out which person is the dipshit. Okay, Twitter has done this for you. Sure, it's it's become the great weeding out process of dipshits, and I think it's been wonderful. Driving down the street, all these cars coming, which one of the person behind the behind the wheel is a fuckwad? Don't know, but once they get on Twitter, you know. And I just think it's been the great weeding out process of good people and bad people in this world. I feel like Thank you're
0: like a you feel like you're like a Twitter Nazi.
1: I'm not a Twitter Nazi. I'm very logical about it.
0: I uh I don't know that you saw this, but a couple of weeks ago when this first became evident that you had blocked, I don't know, I guess about twenty two percent of all wrestling fans. I mean I it's got whoa, a whoa,
1: wait, whoa, where where did you come out with this twenty two percent number?
0: Uh, did that, you have a focus group with Eric Bischoff back in the nineties? It was in the Observer. Uh, well, then that's fact. Go yeah, ahead. absolutely. Well, anyway, uh, I I made a, a meme, and I put the Seinfeld soup Nazi, um, and I put above it, uh, no tweet for you. Hmm. Ho, ho,
1: ho, 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 ho. Uh, I, I do want to say about the Wrestling Observer. I did go on their uh, their show recently uh, with Brian and Mike, Brian Alvarez and Mike. Can't remember Mike's last. That's uh, Sever, Severvine.
0: Yeah, I can't Uh, pronounce it either, but you're close enough for government work. Okay,
1: good guys and a good show, and I appreciate uh, them helping us try to promote this podcast. Uh, uh, Brian Alvarez years ago was kind of like David Meltz, uh, Dave Meltzer, where anything that I did was shit, and they didn't like it. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, they were they were both very respectful, uh, and you know, uh, God bless nostalgia. Uh, people always want to go back to the old days. Absolutely. And like, become a part of the old days. So. Well, well, boy, have we ventured off here.
0: Oddly Ooh. enough, the, uh, the Wrestling Observer radio program has never invited Bruce Pritchard to the show.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, Bruce has a lot to say. Yeah, maybe, that... it's because, maybe it's because he thinks everything they do is bullshit. Probably. Uh, Probably. You know, and uh, there's a lot of bullshit. Hey, this was a bullshit business, right? <laughs> So you're, you're reporting on a bullshit business. you got to have bullshit in in you to be able to report on a bullshit business.
0: Well, was it bullshit that uh, one of the early ideas was to tape three hours on Monday with the first two hours being Saturday night and then the final hour being the live show? Do you think that could have worked? Did you hear that? Or did you think that Nitro always needed to have its own set and feel?
1: I, I think it always needed its own, its own set and feel. I don't think there was any question. I think uh, that if you you try to tape a show and then go live, I, I think by the end of the night the fans are spent. Yeah. The fans are always more excited when you first start and when you get them revved up. Uh, and uh, so I, I I don't know. I know they toyed with that, but I think the the best thing was if Nitro is going to be our flagship, which it became, then it needs its own night and it needs its own special. Uh,
0: Uh, One of the other ways Nitro set out to be different was to aim for a different demographic. The WWF, of course, was aimed at kids, so WCW decided they would target 18- to 35-year-old men, and they would move away from the uh, cartoonish-style stories of the WWF and move to a more reality-based product. Tony, as a fan, did you think that was smart? Because up until this point, WCW had certainly been catering to kids as well.
1: Yeah, I thought it was smart. I, I think you got to be different. Yeah. A- and I think that was one of the problems near the end for us was we were seen as a WWE knockoff uh, near the end of the run of Nitro. And I think that was a smart move. You had to be completely different. Let me ask you a question. How old were you in September of 95 in the first Nitro? 14. 14, All right. And so a- as you can see, we still drew a lot of. You were underneath that demographic. Yeah. Uh, we still drew a lot of kids your age because all of you say, "I grew up watching this," and that's you know, the, you're a freaking millennial. Uh, I'm, te- I I'm like,
0: technically a year or two older than a millennial, uh, but we'll we'll go with it. You're a freaking millennial. Okay. I know. I had I had a house full of it one
1: time. Uh, those kids, uh, those younger kids, uh, are now are the fan base. Of coming to Wrestle, uh, WrestleCon or, or the NWA, uh, convention, uh, because they remember back. And so I think even though that we wanted to be different, I think we even still got the kids, uh, who were under that demographic like yourself.
0: Uh, Bischoff also said he wanted to limit the amount of promotion inside the show itself. And even today, the WWF is constantly promoting their stuff, whether it's on sale dates for tickets or pay-per-views or network shows or buy this, buy that only on pay-per-view tune in next week, et cetera. Right. Um, Bischoff wanted to have folks kind of wait and see what the main event was rather than hear about it a week in advance and then decide. And this is a major departure from the way professional wrestling had been promoted uh, but Eric's argument was, hey, man, they don't tell you on Seinfeld or ER what the show's going to be next week. You just tune in and find out. Do you remember being given this specific directive? And what did you think about it as an old school wrestling guy?
1: Uh, I don't remember being given this directive, but that kind of at first, that kind of seems pretty, pretty cool. But we didn't end up like that. No. So when in the hell did we change? I mean, that to me, that's that's refreshing.
0: No, it was certainly a good idea, uh, but I mean, even at the end of Nitro, which we'll get into the actual show in a minute, they tell you what the what the match is going to be next next week. So, right at the end of it, they did, and right. they even plug what's on Saturday night. So, I think this was a, an idea in theory and concept, but ultimately, it didn't really happen. Let's take well, a minute and put well, over the set design and presentation for Nitro, and let, let me comment on that first. Yeah,
1: uh, that I think you can do both. I think you can get the fans interested in what they're seeing right now without going over the top and promoting what's coming up next week or what's coming up uh, on Saturday night. If you'll recall in watching that show, they didn't talk about next week until right near the end. Right. Uh, That was good. The heat or the angle that they had at the end led to next week's show. Which was which was fine. So they didn't spend the whole hour of that show
0: uh, talking about
1: next week, and that that to me was was well done.
0: Yeah, no argument for me. Um, a lot of the Nitro staples that we remember, as far as the way the set looked, you know, weren't there for the first Nitro because it's in a fucking mall. So you can't set up a ramp and pyro and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but they had lots of little cool stuff that they did on Nitro too. Uh, lights under the ring with a portion of the ring skirt being transparent, the fire imprints uh, on the mats around the ring, the stage and and the desk that the announcers were at, the entrance set, the lighting rig with pyro, you know, an entrance set with lights and smokes and ramps. And all of this is accompanied by the now famous giant WCW diamond plate letters. And this is a cool setup. And I think in hindsight, that kind of gets overlooked, but you got to compare that to what the WWF was presenting at the time, which are just three big red letters R A W. Uh, would David Crockett have helped with uh, this look, or who is involved in that?
1: Uh, well, I I would think that uh, Craig Leathers, uh, David was kind of more the guy. In instead of coming up with the creative ideas and design, he was kind of the guy that did the legwork. We need this, we need this, we need that. You need to organize this. So I don't think I'm not so sure David was was involved in creative end of it. Although I know. He would, he would be involved in any meetings about it. Right. Uh, we had a lot of people. We had Craig Leathers, who was instrumental. Uh, we had a kid named Rob Wright, who had worked for the WWE, who was very strong into graphics. Uh, and we also had uh, Keith Mitchell, who was a long time worked for uh, World Class Championship Wrestling down in Dallas. All these guys had very strong wrestling backgrounds, and of course Craig Leathers who had worked for the WWE as well. Uh, had strong wrestling backgrounds, but were very strong in production. So they all got involved in that, and then we had some other people too, and their names are are are, are not coming to mind right now. Who were, you know, with with Pyro, with graphics. They were all. It was kind of a team thing, right, uh, to make this work.
0: Um, I'm curious about the logo. Of course, uh, we've had fun with that logo here on What Happened When. Uh, doing some in, some logos that were kind of inspired by that. But did you ever see or remember seeing any sort of concept drawings for potential logos for the show, or was this the only one you ever saw? The only one I've ever saw. Again, I was kind of on the outside on this. Yeah. Um. In late June, Bischoff appears on the Chet Copic show and wouldn't confirm that WCW would have a show on TNT, but suggested that why wouldn't WCW try it if they were offered a primetime splot? And uh, when Monday was discussed, Bischoff just played it off like Raw being on Monday was purely coincidental. Uh, By the second week of July, the working name for the show was Wrestling Nitro. And the plan was to debut on September 4th in Miami. Um, Of course, that didn't happen. We'll get into that. In my research, I learned that Nancy Sullivan, known to us wrestling fans as Woman, auditioned for an announcing gig uh, Tony, before we get to Mongo, do you remember Nancy auditioning here or if anyone else was considered for that three-man booth that eventually became Bischoff, Heenan, and Mongo? Uh, no, I don't. I don't remember that at all. As a matter of
1: fact, I uh, I remember being told by Eric that they were going to use Steve McMichael. Uh, being told by Eric, not being told that we're considering McMichael or we're considering this person, he told me that he would be working with McMichael and heenan so that was probably right at the end of all the thought process there
0: so the backstory on mongo mcmichael uh for those of you who aren't familiar is he was a professional football player for the chicago bears and a damn good one at that uh he and his bears had a super bowl run and they became arguably the most marketed team in history up to that point they even did a rap called the super bowl shuffle that everyone copied including the awa with their wrestle rock rumble uh anyway he has some name value And after football, he starts working, doing some sports talk radio in Chicago, and even wins an Emmy for his work with the Chicago bears post game show in 94. Tony, you're in that business today. How prestigious is, uh, that award. An Emmy? Yeah. Oh,
1: it's a tremendous award. It really is. And there, you think about all the people who've worked in television, not that many people have one, uh, I'd like to say that there was an Emmy award at our house for about a year and a half on our mantle. It was not mine. It was my son's, Matt, who works for Fox News. Well, how about Uh, that? But he got one. He worked for MLB Network for a year, and he got one working for MLB Network. Uh, So I was very proud of that. Yeah, it's it's a prestigious award. And I'm not going to say that he didn't earn it, but... If you work on a program uh, that wins an Emmy, everybody that works on that program gets an Emmy. I see. Uh, you, uh, if you are one of the like associate producers or writer, uh, and you want the trophy, you got to buy it. Uh, the ones who are like are on camera and the executive producers, they get the Emmys. But and I, I can understand that because a lot of people work on TV shows and they kind of they they um they can afford it but they don't want to give everybody an Emmy. Sure. So So yeah, it's a prestigious award. I And uh Steve was certainly uh Steve was le- and I guess still is. You know, you talked about how great that uh the Bears defense or the Bears were that year. That defense uh was legit badass defense. Oh, absolutely. And he was one of the badasses of the badasses, buddy. Uh a good friend of mine, Kevin Butler, was a place kicker on that team, uh, and uh, I'm not so sure Kevin Butler uh, has ever been in on a tackle in his life. Uh, so he wasn't a badass. He, but Kevin Butler, and I say this affectionately because he's a friend of mine, is nothing but a slap dick. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> hope you're listening, KB. Uh, but but Mongo was Mongo was was a tough guy, and I, and I think he brought some what eric wanted some legitimacy uh to the broadcast booth
0: yeah he's looking to load up as much crossover and mainstream and wrestling buzz and just every single competitive advantage he can give his product to compete with raw and no question somehow mongo becomes the guy for wcw and he's an interesting character to say the least uh at their august clash of the champions they tease him as an award amy award-winning broadcaster Uh, Before having him announce at the press conference that they hold that he will indeed be a commentator on the show. And I'm curious about this because, you know, everything is looked through uh, wrestling glasses here. He's got the dark glasses. He's got the leather jacket with the fringe on it. He's got the huge Super Bowl ring. He's got a tiny dog in a costume. He's -hmm. like every cliche going for himself. He's basically like a bigger version of a 94 DDP. Uh, how does, how does the Steve McMichael signing come about? It feels like WCW is trying to create their own Jesse, the body Ventura, if you will, from the mainstream yeah. aspect, the glasses, the jacket, all that.
1: Yeah, there's no question. They are. They want a, they want a, want a guy who is very identifiable. Um, and I don't know where the freaking dog came in, but as an owner of a chihuahua myself, who is my good, good friend. Actually, he's my only friend now in life. I, I look back on it and go, wow, that's pretty cool. That is really cool. Back then, I look back on it and say, what the fuck is that dog doing with <laughs> But they were looking for their own character. You're right. Like Jesse, the body mentor, to say he was a, a 94 version of uh, of Diamond Dallas Page.
0: Is, is that your line? Did that's, you come up with that? Yeah, I came up with that. All right. You don't very want to, cool. Thank you. Uh who was working with Steve to prepare him for this because he's never called professional wrestling Eric was yeah that, that explains it yeah um what are I your, mean, again, I was not cool know, enough kind of on
1: the outside of all this
0: so uh what were your initial thoughts on Steve as a person and as a performer yeah. when you met him?
1: Uh, I thought he was a great person, I was excited to meet him because i you know, of course being a football fan uh just a a great guy who would who would do anything uh didn't i mean he Listen, he obviously had an ego because he was a yeah, big star. Sure, but it wasn't an overbearing ego. He was willing to do whatever it would take uh, to make things work. And let let's face it, I love Mongo. I haven't really talked to him since then. I know he's done a lot of things since uh, we went down. But what did he bring to WCW?
0: Debra well, McMichael. exactly.
1: I mean, okay? yeah. so you can't fault him at all for being around. <laughs>
0: Uh, was there a plan all along to ease him into becoming a wrestler or when do you remember that becoming a topic of conversation? I don't, I
1: don't remember when it uh, became a topic, but I think he, uh, I think it was a natural progression and, and I, and I think he really wanted to do that. Uh, so I don't, I don't know the exact time when that happened
0: next week. Tune in to um, instead of what happened when I don't remember when featuring Tony Schiavone. Yeah. Okay.
1: How uh, about, uh, how about his... How about a session of, go fuck yourself, Conrad. I'm doing the best I can. How about that? <laughs> uh, how about that, you Alabama fucking redneck?
0: Uh, so now that we have go our ahead. announced hit team. A,
1: hit me with a roll tide. Go ahead. Hit it.
0: Roll tide. Uh, oh,
1: go ahead. Hit me with a roll tide. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. Okay,
0: That's hilarious. Yeah. Right. Hey, um. What's your wife doing? Let's get her in here. She can't do any fucking worse at this than you are right now. <laughs>
1: okay. She's actually, uh, she's, uh, it's right now, it's uh, as we uh, record this, it's about uh, three, uh, one o'clock. Uh, she didn't wake up till three in the afternoon because she's hungover. She drinks all night.
0: Oh, so. probably from being married to you. Why? <laughs> wow.
1: Here we go. Back and forth we go. Can't get anywhere to sniff. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, so now we have our announced team lined up. Thank God Tony Schiavone's not on it. And right. um, Bischoff wants to pull out all the stops for the roster. And he gets busy recruiting a pretty damn incredible list of potential signees. And that includes Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, Two Cold Scorpio, Al Snow, and even Sabu. Uh, in the end, Al Snow holds out, thinking the WWF had more interest, and he specifically mentions that Vince sent a limo and rolled out the red carpet, so to speak, in recruiting him, whereas WCW seemed much more aloof and passive. Tony, besides Bischoff, who would have been involved with identifying potential new talent for WCW in the summer of 95?
1: Uh, it would have been the member. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, let me answer this in, in a slang that you would know, okay? Yep. It would be identified with you. Well, Conrad, it would be, I think, members of the booking committee. Uh, and uh, that would probably be like Kevin Sullivan, Terry Taylor. Uh, who else would have been in that booking committee at that time? You probably know more than I do because you read them dirt sheets, don't you?
0: What any of these guys been on your radar by the time? Or were you just busy uh, ogling over other men's wives tits? OK, I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing my job. Okay. Which we don't know at this point what it is because you're not involved in the show. <laughs> right. I,
1: I wasn't involved in the show at all. I mean, obviously I got involved in it later, but it is, it is it, in the uh, formative years of it. I wasn't involved in it. And you know, that, uh, that kind of pissed me off to be honest with you. Sure. Because, because I announcing is how I made my money. Right. And, and, and that's what I, what I, uh, I went to college for and that I got a broadcasting degree. That's what I wanted to be. But my love was being a producer, getting involved in the television aspect of it. That was my love. I, I, was, uh, I worked for, uh, for Vince for one year, and I was the producer of Coliseum Videos back then. And we would take old footage and build, uh, build uh, videos. Like my first one was on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, and we would also build videos on the live pay-per-view events, which were four back then. I love doing that. That's what I I really enjoyed. So I was really kind of ticked that I was not really that much involved in the production of of Nitro. It was a very political thing back then. So
0: Allegedly Benoit, Malenko and Guerrero are all hesitant to sign based on how Pillman, Austin and Benoit himself had been positioned in the past with WCW. Uh, Guerrero specifically backside of negotiations at one point opting for ECW as his American home. Uh, That doesn't change until WCW offers a guarantee contract, which is what Eddie really wanted. And uh, Masa Saito eventually brokers the deal with WCW, and the guys sign a short-term 90-day deal, almost as if it's a, a trial, so to speak. Do you remember there being any sort of hesitation from guys about signing with WCW when they weren't really already on a WWF roster?
1: I remember some of them being hesitant from signing uh, because they were unsure of the direction of of WCW. But I also remember uh, back then a, a chance to work with a major promotion uh, was uh, was a heck of a deal.
0: Yeah, it seems like yeah, you, know, you got to get your foot in the door. So right, right. The,
1: the, the I think the there s- were there there were some of both, and uh, you know, I think everybody wanted. I don't know when guaranteed contracts started. You probably know. <laughs>
0: Lex Luger takes credit for it. So does Kevin Nash, but Lex Lex Luger takes credit for it.
1: But by that time, guaranteed contracts were probably not the norm overall. And people were fishing for a guaranteed contract. I mean, look, look, years ago, and I'm talking about, I first started in 83, but even before that, years ago, wrestlers wrestled as independent contractors. They got paid on 1099s. They had no taxes taken out. That's why some of them got into IRS trouble. Uh, They had no insurance. They had no health insurance to protect them. So you got hurt. You still had to wrestle if you wanted to get paid. Right. I, I can remember a WCW Saturday night, an old school one back in the 80s. Ole Anderson was wrestling. Ole fell out of the ring. He had turned his knee. And he he just fell out of the ring, and he was over on the set. And I don't know how we covered it up, but he didn't wrestle the rest of that tag team match, and he couldn't get up. And I remember him still going to Columbus that night to wrestle at Columbus, uh, Georgia, uh, because if he didn't, he wouldn't get paid. That's a long story to tell you that uh, guaranteed contracts were important to these guys based on what wrestling had been in the years prior to that.
0: Terry Taylor says on the WCW hotline that Al Snow came in all stuck up, making financial demands and bragging about a WWF offer when, quote, Snow has never done anything in wrestling, never drawn a dime in 12 years in wrestling, and just believes what people in the newsletters say about him. Uh, He he goes on this rant on August 8th on the hotline, uh, and he's not done there. He goes on to say Guerrero has never drawn any money. Uh, he said Malenko demanded full control of his programs and quote, he's never done enough in wrestling to make a demand like that. And he closes with Malenko and Guerrero have never been anywhere or done anything in wrestling. Uh, so he's pretty hot that these guys didn't just immediately take the offer. So maybe that lends itself to maybe Terry was the guy who originally just quote unquote discovered these guys for WCW yeah. and then turns them down. Uh, what was Terry's role at the time? Uh, you know, is it just creative? It, what's his official title? And, and were guys allowed to go into business for themselves on the hotline like this? Or would this should have been a, a Bischoff directive? Hey, if they don't want to come in, fucking bury them.
1: That would not. I, I don't think that would have been a Bischoff directive, number one. Uh, now, going back to Terry Taylor always was involved in the creative end of it, the booking committee. But guys who were in the booking committees were kind of in charge of talent, too. Uh, you know, I, I guess the, the WWE had uh, a, a person in charge of talent. JR was that for a while. Uh, but I don't think there was one person in charge of talent, with the exception of maybe they made Terry in charge of it. Here's another thing, too. I believe that most things that you heard and saw from us back then were a work. What Terry had to say. Could have been legit because it was a nine hundred number, but I don't believe any of it. I, I just you know you could, I mean, even the the Hogan thing, and we'll get into that. I know in, in the the Bash of the Beach, I I was I was immune to all that shit. I thought everything that I saw was a fucking work, everything, uh, and it kind of uh, kind of numbed me to the to the business of 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 what is a shoot and what is a work. So I'm not saying that what Terry said on the 900 number was a shoot, but I'm saying it very well could have been a work and a work just trying to, if people call the hotline, though, they would say, holy shit, this guy is really ripping on this guy. This stuff's for real. And maybe it really wasn't, uh, but it got people to call the hotline.
0: Is your, uh,
1: I, I don't know. Okay. Again, I don't know what Terry would, and the company would have benefited from something like that,
0: right? Well, we're talking about real and fake. I mean, what everybody wants to know is, are Deborah's breasts real? I, I, I,
1: so Terry was on the, the hotline for, fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that, and I say that with great affection because I hear I am trying to think, and you now all of a sudden, whoop, the puppies are in my mind.
0: Yeah, and and the blood flow is leaving your brain. Uh, They start Sabu in late August and have him at a pro taping so they can get footage of him to use in a promotional video to build anticipation. And this seems like 100 years ago, but back then, Sabu was a bit of an underground superstar who had a ton of buzz but didn't really have mainstream exposure yet in the United States. So Bischoff smartly decides to have him do a taping prior to Nitro so they can build a package highlighting his unique style And then show it on the debut edition of Nitro to build some interest uh, for the second Nitro. And after all this hype and buzz and promotion on the second edition of Nitro, we get the match we all want to see, Sabu versus Alex Wright. Uh, What were your thoughts on Sabu prior to working with him? Had you heard about this buzz? Did you get the tables and chairs and triple jump moonsault and Arabian Face Buster and all the gimmicks?
1: Yeah, I had heard about all that, and I was familiar with uh, who Sabu was. I thought, even back up uh, on the second Nitro, which was in Miami, back up to the first Nitro, and we did a video package. Yeah. And again, here we are, Monday morning quarterback. To me, that package didn't sell shit. Nope. Did not sell. As a matter of fact, the package, and I don't know who's responsible for this, and I apologize because the person responsible for this package Probably I know very well, and I've been very friendly with in my career, but you couldn't even see what he was doing in that package. That did nothing to sell Sabu, uh, and so, the table
0: didn't even break. Like the clip, like show a clip of the fucking table breaking. It didn't sure. even break.
1: And, and you know, it was it was almost a package to me that was trying to show how fancy we could build packages instead of putting the guy over. There you go. Uh, and you know, he was doing all these tumbles, and they had all this, uh, these, you know. It was just it wasn't it wasn't well done. It, it built up no anticipation for Sabu. None at all. With fans who may have not known him at all.
0: Before agree? we Oh, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. It was a miss. Uh which is why it didn't last. Right. Uh before we move on, who was Jim Barnett's favorite wrestler and why was it Alex Wright? Uh
1: I don't know who Jim Barnett's favorite wrestler was because, you know, I only knew Jim Barnett later in his career. Uh but uh It was probably Alex Wright because Jim had a very strong, uh, had, uh, I'm struggling here. Help me out here.
0: Nope. You're on your own.
1: (laughs) Cause, uh, Jim Barnett, uh, well, he's dead too. We can talk about him, I guess. Uh, Jim Barnett, uh, liked wrestlers from other lands. He
0: was, uh, (laughs) do you have a Jim Barnett impression?
1: Everybody, no, but I'm telling you right now, the greatest Jim Barnett impression in the world is Jim Ross's. Oh, it's good. Oh, it's tremendous. He, we, uh, when we were at the NWA uh, fan convention, we had uh, I was sitting down and he was <laughs> he was doing his Jim Barnett impressions and we were all just dying. Uh, but uh, thank you for bringing up Jim Barnett because I had some very unhappy times with him. Unhappy uh, times. Unhappy times with him, yeah.
0: Did he make you put on white underwear and spray water on your crotch? Uh, I do that anyway. What are you uh, thinking about, Deborah?
1: <laughs> you just run out of shit to ask me here today, aren't you?
0: Well, everything else I ask you about, you don't remember. So if I talk yeah. about Deborah's tits, you remember those really well. <laughs> so I'm just playing well, the hits, brother. and playing the hits.
1: I wasn't involved in the show. I was, I was ostracized. I was moved out. They didn't like me. Ah, fuck it. Uh, But uh, I guess uh, Alex Ray was a very attractive young man. I'll leave it at that.
0: Around this time, it's reported that Mike Rotundo was coming back to WCW after a run as Irwin R. Schyster IRS, with Vince McMahon and company. And Allegedly, one of the ideas would be that Rotundo would first appear on WCW programming by interrupting a WCW press conference, and then that would set up a match for a perceived, quote, interpromotional match, uh, since so many fans were familiar with him as a WWF performer. And this very much feels NWO-ish. Of course it doesn't happen, but do you remember this ever being discussed? And had it happened, wouldn't that have taken away some of the shine from Scott Hall's appearance on nitro the following year?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that, that, uh, it was, uh, Ixnate, uh, they ended up, uh, doing a video on him, which was okay. Uh, he didn't really know if his name was Michael Wall Street or Mr. Wall Street. During that
0: promo. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about his bit because he did have a segment uh, on the show where he did an interview where he was trying to be a little bit of a million dollar man knockoff. I mean, he even had the um, the glittery dollar sign on his lapel and he called himself um, Michael Wall Street and made kind of a joke about the WWF's new generation without saying WWF and said it's not the new generation. It's the few generation and that he's sure the IRS will be watching him just trying to get in whatever he can kind of inside with a wink and a nod. How do you think that came off on the show?
1: Uh, It came off kind of passe. It came off kind of, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know if people got the inside joke. Maybe they did. Uh, maybe it was something that could have run a little bit later when fans were starting to tune back and forth. But, uh, it completely went over my head at that time.
0: It, it feels like if this research had indicated they needed some WWF stuff, then this was a smart move to have Luger show up and Rotundo on here. Just any sort of WWF crossover seems like that would be something that their research would support.
1: It because, it because it set up what looked to be and what real, realistically was a war for talent. Yeah. Uh, Luger's appearance certainly did set that up uh, because the announcers reacted to it uh, and the fans reacted to it, the wrestlers reacted to it at that time when Luger walked out. Just to throw a Mike Rotundo video in there and really not react that much to it uh, to me didn't have much of an impact. And so it wasn't Mike's fault. Uh, But uh, To me, it just didn't have that much of an impact.
0: Let's talk about um, what led to Luger being there. In the August 14th edition of The Observer, Meltzer would report that the main event for the first Nitro is supposed to be Hogan versus Paul Orndorff. And, of course, this changes, and Orndorff isn't in the main event. Uh, And he may have been considered for one of two reasons. One, to recreate his very successful run with Vince that did big business opposing Hogan a decade before uh, or two to capitalize on the dirt sheet buzz that Paul had for his backstage fight with Vader. So let's cover that for a minute. Uh, in, in August, WCW has a TV taping at center stage where Big Van Vader and Paul Orndorff get into a backstage brawl of sorts. Orndorff at the time was working as an agent. Vader shows up late. Uh, Paul thinks this is Vader being disrespectful. They have words. Uh, Vader says he was doing a photo shoot on orders from Bischoff and everyone knew he would be late. Uh, apparently they were running late on interviews and the day was running long and they needed Vader to do this interview right then, or they'd have to go into extra expense for the crew. So depending on who you believe, Paul cussed Vader and called him a fat ass prima Donna. Vader acted like he was going to do something about it and pushes Orndorff down And then Orndorff, allegedly, knocks Vader out with a single punch from his bad arm. And Paul's bad arm is from an injury where he never got it fixed. In the 80s, it caused the arm to atrophy. And allegedly, Paul is fresh out of the shower here and wearing shower shoes, like flip-flops, when he punches Vader. So the legend has grown, as time has went on, that you've got an older star in shower shoes with a bad arm who knocks out the biggest in-ring bully WCW had at the time, and, uh, in the end, WCW sided with Orndorff and suspended Vader for the incident. Now that's all the rumor and innuendo, Tony, but you were probably there. So set the record straight. What really happened?
1: I'll tell you exactly what happened because it happened right at my feet, right at my feet. Um, we were doing interviews on the set at center stage
0: with Gene Okerlund,
1: with Gene Okerlund and Paul was one of the agents and Paul was trying to round up guys I don't think Vader was late I think if if I remember correctly and I think I do Vader, they couldn't find him I see and we, we needed him to come out I don't think the I don't think a concern about interviews running long and paying the crew extra to do it because the crew was there all day to do whatever we needed to do I don't think they're I don't think that was a concern. So the microphone is open. An interview is over. Paul comes out with a sheet and it's supposed to be later. And Paul says, I can't fucking find him fucking or something to that extent. We'll do something else without that motherfucker. Okay, but he may may have said prima donna. So they started to do something else. Paul comes backstage and I'm standing there. There was a room where we did our meetings and Paul was standing there and he didn't have his shower shoes on. He was he was still he was working clothes. Okay. And Vader came up and pushed him and said, You motherfucker, if you got something you gotta to say to me, you say it to my face. Well, when he pushed Paul, Paul fucking clocked him, threw him down, got him down, and fucking was stomping the boot, was stomping his head into the concrete. Stomping right on top of his head, and Vader was saying, Get him off of me, get him off of me, and Paul was just stomping the fuck out of him. And I remember guys getting around and pulling off. And I remember Kevin Sullivan saying, when they finally pulled him apart, Kevin Sullivan said, "Let Paul go." And he's—I remember him saying, "If you don't let Paul go, Vader's going to take a cheap shot while you're holding him. That's what kind of guy he is." And they finally pulled him apart, and Vader was bleeding. So, one punch clocked knock him down. Not so sure that happened. He may have just—he may have just taken him down. Uh, but once he got him down. He was stomping the back of the head into the concrete or on the was stomp, was stomping his face into the concrete by stomping on the back of his head. Uh, Eric wasn't there. Uh, Eric had heard so many things, and this was before we all had cell phones. So there was a payphone back there. Eric said, Let me talk to Shivani. And I told Eric exactly what I just told you, although it was probably a lot of pressure in my mind. And he said, So Vader instigated this. I said, Oh, yeah, Vader's the one that shoved him and, and you know, challenged him. So. That's how it all went down, and I, I'm—I don't know if I'm proud to say, but I can tell you it happened right there in front of me, and it was no—there were no shower shoes. The uh, photo shoot could have been—I don't think it was—you know, Vader just was roaming around there, and they couldn't find him because you know, uh, running these guys down was, has always been a big problem, right? Uh, and uh, the bigger the arena, the tougher it is sometimes to find him. You can tell, guys. You got interviews at four thirty. Be there. They're still not going to be there. That's just the way they were, and that's why agents were assigned to run these guys down. Uh, Vince had a really uh, pretty much choreographed, but that was what happened then. I think the Orndorff Hogan thing probably was as much to uh, to garner the excitement of ten years ago and the great run that they had because it was tremendous. Yeah, uh, Paul Orndorff and Hulk Hogan. That split-screen cage who got on the floor first was a tremendous angle, a tremendous match, uh, and I think they were trying to pick up on that. I'm not so sure if they were booking for the dirt sheets or not back then.
0: But it's, it's, it's come out in recent years that Vader has said that he was drinking a lot at the time and not being himself, and Orndorff has also admitted that he could have handled it better, but either way, it was a mess that ultimately re- results in... A lot of things changing because all the, the rumor was Vader was slated to beat Hogan on the second Nitro for the world title to mm-hmm. give people the impression that this is the type of show where anything can happen and they're going to run hot angles and it's not just going to be squash matches so it wasn't meant for vader to be the wcw champ again which means that uh it kind of seems strange but he never won the big gold belt but if you could win any belt what would it be cruise on over to leatherbydan.com right now and pick out your next belt it doesn't get any easier than dealing with dan you can even get a custom belt from leatherbydan.com for only $9.99 when you cruise on over to leatherbydan.com just click our show logo and right there you'll see our special promotion what we've got exactly is a three plate custom belt. It's all nickel, handcrafted, right here in the United States, made exactly to your specifications, and it's only $9.99. Maybe you even see my podcast championship belt over there. I got it dual plated for an extra 200 bucks. Well, Bruce did. Uh, this is the coolest gift I ever got. It was a custom belt with my face on it from leatherbydan.com. Bruce got it for me for Christmas, and he didn't have to place the order way in advance. He even got to make payments, and you can do this too. You can get your belt in as little as 10 to 12 weeks, He'll take payment plans. He even has free shipping. Even if you're not really in the market for the belt. Man, if you like the show, I'm going to ask you to do one thing today. Cruise on over to leatherbydan.com. Support our sponsor. Take a look. There's something for everybody, especially if you like wrestling. Check it out. It's leatherbydan.com. Right. Um, Well,
1: yeah, and, you know, this may have been the last straw with Vader because I I know, uh, you know, as... uh, as Leon said, he probably was drinking a lot at that time. He was uh, at times difficult to deal with—not me, but difficult with the with the with the uh, with the agents uh, and and the guys in the business. Difficult to deal with. I can say this without a doubt: he got his ass kicked that day. Uh, Paul Orndorff beat the shit out of him that day, uh, and uh, it's it's a moment that I'll never forget. And uh, so I can see this kind of being the last straw because vader was difficult to work with and i think admittedly so after what you just said
0: so in september of 95 wcw sends a cease and desist to the wwf claiming vader's under contract and any contact would be considering tampering and they may just be trying to get the jump there yeah. um he wasn't on the first nitro and they started the second nitro making mention that vader hadn't completed the necessary paperwork and had gone awol And this is one week after Luger had jumped ship and debuted on the very first edition of Nitro that we're talking about today. So it sort of works out like it's a bit of a trade of sorts with Luger coming to WCW and Vader going to the WWF. I know that's not exactly how it happened, uh, but who would you argue got the better of this trade if it really was a trade?
1: Well, I would argue that, uh, that WCW did.
0: See, I think everybody would disagree with that and say that really? that Vader going to the WWF was a bigger coup.
1: Well, you know, uh, that is probably uh, an opinion from a fan
0: basis. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just doing an opinion from a front office basis. Sure. No, I get that. Okay. Um, so anyway, here's how Luger fits in here. It's reported at the time that that whole brawl happens. Uh, that it leads to renewed negotiations with Luger. Uh, Meltzer had put it out there that Bischoff was not high on Luger and it only offered him $1,000 per night without a contract. And in fact, Bischoff himself says he only agreed to meet with Luger out of respect to Sting, who had requested the meeting, and they didn't want anybody to know, so the meeting actually happens in Sting's garage because they don't want it getting out. Uh, Bischoff said of Luger, quote, "...between his lack of talent and piss-poor attitude, I had no interest in him whatsoever." Um, bringing in a guy like Lex Luger, a guy who, in my opinion, did nothing but bitch and complain and was a marginal talent at best, just didn't make any sense to me, end quote. But then, of course, this fight happens at center stage and WCW starts to scramble. One of the early ideas, as we mentioned, was to have Vader in the main event win the belt from Hogan on Nitro, and that would really set up their War Games pay-per-view Um, and now with Vader's situation, they start to reconsider the stance on Luger and it frees up a bunch of cash. So Bischoff says he signed Lex for only $150,000, a number that others have disputed. Uh, But there's a promise that if it went well, he would revisit that. And it's worth mentioning that Luger is leaving a roughly half a million dollar a year gig with the WWF when he makes this jump. Uh so Vader is persona non grata on TV for WCW beyond pre-recorded TV commercials for Fall Brawl and stuff like that. Um so to kind of recap, Vader goes from being the featured big push, title win, main event uh on Nitro uh to now they inform him he's fired on the 11th of October with the official reason being that his 90-day review window had passed. And he was medically unable to wrestle because of a shoulder injury. Uh, that, it, but everyone kind of knows it's because of this incident with Orndorff. Do you remember the shoulder injury, Tony?
1: No, I do not. Uh, now, let, let me let me go back here. You say everyone knows it's because of the fight. Everyone doesn't know. Uh, you guys who followed the dirt sheet knew, and the guys in the wrestling business knew but i think the the regular fan did did not oh know yeah yeah out.
0: i'm just saying when they list a thing on there saying oh your 90 days thing passed and yeah. you can't wrestle yeah. that's a bullshit answer the real answer is hey you're hard to do business with you got in a right. fight with orndorff get the fuck right. out of here but that's right. ha- that's hard to put on a form
1: yes it is <laughs> yes
0: it is but uh, the shoulder injury, you talking about uh, Vader's shoulder injury? Yeah, it happened at the Bash of the Beach in 1995. There was a cage match against Hogan there in July. Uh, so a mm-hmm. couple of months prior to that, or I guess a month prior to that, he was trying to do a shooting star press, but he said Hogan was too far out and it was a messy fall. So he hurt himself, but just continued to work through it with uh, pain pills and booze. That's not a great combination. No, not for someone his size. In his demeanor, it wasn't. And when he was... Um, suspended without pay he was supposedly making seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year through march of 99 bruce has disputed that amount before on our wwf show on vader do you think wcw was actually paying vader 750 and 95 no i do not i can't think anybody south of hulk hogan was
1: making that amount yeah me either yeah that's i don't know i don't know where they got that one from
0: Well, Vader's out there doing shoot interviews and and keeping that that story going, but now you've heard it from both sides. Uh, That doesn't appear to be the case. No. It was reported in the August 28th edition of The Observer that the weekly costs of producing Nitro are going to be well in excess of $100,000, but TNT is only going to pay WCW $38,000 a week for the show. So it's positioned to look like it's a money loser from the get-go, do you have any sort of insight on production costs of Nitro, Tony, or, or doing a live show like this at that time?
1: No, but I, I, I'm sure the numbers that, that were out there are pretty darn close. Uh, they, it was more than $38,000 to produce a show. Uh, to produce a live show, there's and, – and we brought this up earlier. How many people does it take? Right. Uh, and
0: we're, we're talking about – Got to fly them you know, in. I mean, there's a, yeah. the building, security – Pyro probably cost $30,000.
1: Right. Uh, Security, uh, you know, yeah, all all that stuff. So if those numbers are correct, uh, then we were losing money on that. But uh, an actual figure, I don't know, but north of $100,000 to me seems pretty legit. Even for the first one.
0: Was there any pressure internally to push ad sales or create revenue in other ways to try to offset this loss for WCW? Yeah, there
1: was. There was no question there was, uh, we had a sales staff, uh, Rose kid named uh, kid. He's older than I am. I think Rob Garner, who was in sales, uh, pushing for sales. And, uh, so we had a whole sales staff and yeah, there was plenty of pressure to, to offset the cost of this in other ways.
0: Um, it's worth mentioning here that WCW was paying to air their syndicated shows prior to nitro becoming a thing so, for example, in New York alone, they're spending more than 600 grand a year to air that syndicated show. And they have a similar deal in LA and other markets. So, if you add all of that up and you kind of scratch some of those, Nitro could become a lost leader of sorts because in theory, more people will see Nitro and you wouldn't need uh, as much of this expense on the syndicated deals. How did you guys justify? Um, these big syndication deals did you think you were it was paying for itself from a pay-per-view standpoint or did you have local sales teams in the market or how did that work
1: you have to go back in in that era and <clears throat> and just and i'm sure there are numbers that, to support it for a longest time new york city did not have cable and uh, a lot of people got their got their wrestling on on the local channels. Of course, that has tremendously changed now. You're 20, 22 years later. Uh, but I had often heard that you needed syndication in New York because of the lack of cable exposure. Do you know that to be the case? Have you read on that? Have you studied that? Do you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure. It's not a business that I... um <laughs> yeah. I think that's the
1: case. I think that's what's always thought. Uh, paying $600,000 a year to me just blows my mind because back in the old days, you did a barter. Right. Uh, uh, and now if we're paying that, I'm, I, you know, why, why are we paying that? Because if they don't have cable, they're not going to watch the pay-per-views. And how many times do we run a house show in New York? We never can run Madison Square Garden. I'm just yeah. taking New York as an example. Sure. We, we can only run the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, is so, it worth $600,000 a year to bring in a house show maybe twice a year?
0: Yeah, let's scrap that $12,000 a week investment. I mean, it's certainly not going to pay itself off and instead no. double down on nitro. So yeah, right. just by restructuring the money that's already allotted for television, you can come out ahead. Uh, So even though the narrative here paints a picture that uh, Luger appearing on Nitro was a complete and total surprise to everyone in the business, Meltzer reported that it was a possibility on that same August 28th edition of the Observer. Uh, And you kind of said something earlier I didn't expect you to say, Tony, you had worked with Luger for years, dating back to the Crockett days, uh, and not a lot of people, I mean, I'm only taking this from Bruce and, and Bischoff's testimony, what was your experience like working with him?
1: Was good. Uh, I knew he was hard to work with. I knew he questioned things. Uh, and he questioned things at a time when most guys didn't question them. I didn't think he was that great of a worker. Uh, he was okay as on the stick. Not great. But his look was phenomenal. Yeah. Was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, there were, When Luger first arrived on the scene at Jim Crockett Promotions, no one looked like him. Right. No one even came close to looking like him. So he got to where he got basically on his looks, not on his workability and not on, certainly not on his talk and certainly not on his ability to help things, you know, to to do things like they wanted. Uh, he was kind of an anomaly because, uh, he became a star without the attributes of a star, with the exception of the look. But, uh, he was a he was a smart kid. Uh, we discussed a lot of things other than wrestling. Had a lot of great discussions about things, uh, but I knew he was very difficult to work with. Uh, and it's he's kind of an oddity in this in in the industry.
0: For sure. I mean, he's, obviously he's a different person now. He couldn't be you know nicer. And I, I recommend that everybody go check out. Uh, his interview with Eric Bischoff right here on MLW Radio, he did a two-parter. Part two is amazing. Not to say part one's not any good, but part two is really, really good stuff. Uh, he's in a different place in his life. He and Eric are obviously on much better terms now than maybe they were once upon a time.
1: Well, time heals all. I know that. Uh, uh, Luger was a teammate in college football of uh, University of Georgia head coach Mark Richt. They went to Miami together and Mark Richt and I became very close friends over the years that he was the head coach of the University of Georgia because I did his morning I did his morning show for like ten years. Uh, and so I went to practice one day and Luger was there in his wheelchair. And from what I remember of him both uh, as a person and physically to see Luger like that was one of the most incredible scenes in my life from what he was to what he became. Uh, he he frequently came to university of Georgia football practices. Uh, and he and Rick were friends and yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I know, uh, I know a lot about Lex because, uh, I know, uh, I'm very friendly with the man who coached his son in college basketball at Mercer university. Uh, and, uh, I've, you know, I've been told a lot of stories about the family and, and Luger's life. He, you know, uh, and the things that happened with he and Miss Elizabeth. And there's a, I would think on MLW radio, there's room for a third segment of that interview based on his life and what's going on with him.
0: No doubt about it. Yeah. Um, in August. But he, uh, but he was easy to work with, with
1: me. And and again, I go back to the same thing. And, I, and it, this is, you know. I mentioned earlier this is a bullshit business. Uh, a lot of what you heard out of my mouth was bullshit, and I enjoyed it. Uh, but honestly, most guys, almost every guy was good with me to work with because I always talked well about them on TV. And they thought, many of them thought it was important for them to be on my good side, I guess, so I would talk well about them on TV. In reality, I was going to do that anyway because that was my job. So everybody was nice to me, just about.
0: Uh, Everybody wasn't always nice to Bischoff, though. In August, Paul E. cuts a promo on WCW from the ECW arena. Uh, He cuts it on WCW, Bischoff, and Turner, and essentially declares war, whatever that means, and gets his fans to chant, fuck you, Bischoff. Of course, Scorpio, Sabu, Benoit, Guerrero, and Malenko had all been working dates with ECW, uh, and with them now signing with WCW, that's over. So Paul's hot about it, and he himself has an interesting history with WCW. I'm sure we'll cover sometime in the future. Uh, Tony, though, we all know Bischoff is a guy who likes to compete. Do you remember his reaction to hearing about these rants from Paul and the anti-Bischoff chants at ECW house shows?
1: Yeah, I remember his reaction being being good. We're getting exposure on their shows. Right. Uh, so I think Eric, uh, had no problems with that at all. Eric, you know, in, in Eric's position, being the boss negotiating contracts, uh, you can see where he would have a lot of heat, but the fact that we went in, I guess we as a company or he went in and took all those stars and brought them over, got ECW Channing, you know, fuck Bishop or whatever goes back to something we talked about on an earlier podcast that, uh, don't mention the enemy. Just try to put yourself over. Well, they were mentioning us, and uh, that was good for us, probably. That drew more attention to us, and I know Eric liked that.
0: Uh, The major TV trade publications ran stories in late August covering the WCW press conference that announced Monday Nitro. We'll get to some Bischoff quotes in a moment, but first I want to ask something, Tony, I've wanted to know for a long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's three wrestlers who appear at this press conference, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Sting being the three. And they're there in their full wrestling garb. Uh, We mentioned earlier that Steve McMichael is here, too. Uh, Tony, where the hell's Ric Flair? Why why is Ric Flair not amongst those chosen to represent WCW at this time? This feels like one of the first of many public slights that Bischoff would have to Flair. Am I wrong?
1: No, it it, it came across that way. I don't know. Flair may have been, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. You know Flair as well as I do, probably better. Uh, what did he say about it?
0: Uh, well, I'm sure at the time he was uh, slighted, but now okay. he's like, you know, in hindsight, he'd rather not be there. He, you know, yeah, he'd rather be hanging out. He'd rather not be working. You know, doing this. Yeah, but.
1: yeah. I'm sure he wouldn't. And and you know, the things like that, although are important to the company. You know, the guys really, their time is their time. Uh. A perfect example is, uh, and I'm thinking this is 1994, the year before Luger came, came back to WCW. He worked an event, uh, well, he worked the uh, Survivor Series. And I don't know where the Survivor Series was that night, but I remember watching the Survivor Series. We were back here in Atlanta and watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade the next day, and he was on a freaking float. And I remember thinking, "Oh, I'm betting he is pissed off, man," because to be on one of those floats, you got to get up early, right? Uh, and so I, I'm sure they, I'm sure they brought a they brought him in on a private plane right after the event, put him up in a hotel in New York. He had much no, not much sleep at all, and there he was waving everybody on the float. Uh, and I remember thinking at that time, again, he's probably pissed off. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Flair was slighted. I don't know the reasoning behind that. It, it may have been, uh, well, you're obviously going to have Hogan there. Sure. You're obviously, obviously going to have Macho Man Randy here sure. there because they, they got a lot of uh, exposure with the WWF. A- and they're in New York. And they're in New York. Uh, Sting, colorful, full regalia. That always draws a crowd or would get a, a sure. shot or two on TV. What's wrong with what? the fourth
0: one being Flair?
1: Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It should be. Because he was is one of the big stars in 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 the industry.
0: Uh, at the press conference, Bischoff says, "quote uh, Why did I want to go up against the competition? Because I like kicking butt." Yeah. Tony, is there a more Bischoff quote from this time than that? No,
1: there's not. That's that's Eric. You know, Eric. Eric was was very aggressive. Eric wanted, and I was mentioned on earlier uh, podcasts. Eric wanted to kick WWE's ass. He wanted to do that. That was his that was what he wanted to be remembered for. Uh, and he was very aggressive about that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. I don't I don't think. Uh, but that was Eric.
0: Bischoff somewhat acknowledges at this press conference that WCW doesn't expect to beat Rawls ratings right away. Uh, and he says, quote, at the end of three years, I'll be standing alone. The first month, I realize I'm going against a product that has been well branded and I don't expect to take over immediately. No great war has ever been won without a long battle. How prophetic that would be in hindsight. Wow. Uh, I, like
1: the, I, I like the terms war. Yeah. Takeover battle. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just setting the stage, right?
0: Absolutely. It does. And
1: that's That's basically declaring that's declaring war. I mean. You could have had a boss come in and say, you know, they're going to do their thing. I think we're going to do our thing, and I think we'll be successful. But he used those words, direct to right events. Very prophetic.
0: Prior to this, Bischoff had been seemingly more focused on trying to get WCW out of the red. And I think a lot of fans forget that WCW has yet to turn a profit the entire time Turner owned it. Uh, So, Bischoff was canceling money losing ideas, including a lot of house shows, and he was instead finding more economical ways to save money and get uh, some crossover appeal, like the long tapings that they did at Disney. Wrestling fans didn't necessarily like that, you know, and now they say, oh, I hated that, but uh, flying in over the mouse ears, you know, really mattered in the industry, the television industry, and it was a cost cutting measure. Uh, because they had the studio, they could do so many, so much at one time. But at this press conference, it seems like it's a little bit of a departure, and it's the first time we start to hear Bischoff's obsession with beating the WWF, essentially becoming judged more on the ratings than anything else. Um, is that fair to say? You feel like Nitro is, you know, the first time that the obsession really switched from. Trying to be more profitable and draw more money, and now it's more about drawing a bigger rating. Well, I think
1: they're hand in hand, aren't they? If you draw a bigger rating, you're gonna you're gonna make more profits. In theory, uh, in theory, it is. Uh, and I think it's you're seeing us becoming less of a wrestling company and more of a television company.
0: There you go. At that time. And that's what I really want to talk about because so many fans, you know, just automatically talk about ratings during this era but that's not the only indicator it, it, it's representative of um ad revenue that's the reason ratings matter you know at potential advertisers are want to know what the ratings are and so you know with that in mind if you know that that's just one of the metrics it doesn't replace licensing it doesn't replace merchandise it doesn't replace uh you know ticket sales Uh, It doesn't replace pay-per-view buy rates, et cetera, et cetera. It's just one of the many. Uh, But it seems like from here on out, at least from my worldview, it becomes what Bischoff is hell-bent on. And I love details like this, Tony. WCW holds this press conference to announce the debut of Nitro in New York City. And, of course, one of the reasons is New York is America's largest media market. But doesn't it have something to do, in your opinion, that this is in Vince's backyard when they do it?
1: yeah that to me that was the whole reason to have it in New York. I mean, logically you'd have it in Atlanta wouldn't you because that's where you're based out of or Charlotte kind of broadcasting right yeah, but you have it in New York back in the day when I first started in wrestling, you were here's where the things were talked about going to work in the Carolinas that meant you went to work for the Crockets right. Going to Florida meant you you went uh, for Graham. To the Grams, right? Uh, working for Gondia meant you, you worked out in Minnesota. Yep. But when you said, I'm going to work for New York. It's McMahon. It was McMahon. You called it New York. That was the indicator with the boys, we're going to New York. Flair even, Flair even did a, a, a great local promo one time. I don't know where it aired on. You may have seen it. Flair said, people have been trying to get out of New York forever. I'm trying to get in. And that was back when he was pretty, it's back when he was working with Junkyard Dog and pretty pissed off about his life. <laughs> um, and so it was called New York back then. And that's what, uh, that's why it was there. It was there because of Vince McMahon. Not necessarily because it was the television capital of the world. I mean, you could have done it in Los Angeles, really. Uh, but that was the reason it was done.
0: In a very Bischoff note here, do you remember the venue where this press conference happened? I don't remember the venue. The Harley Davidson Cafe.
1: (laughs) Is this right at sale
0: for what? That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, The TV trades indicate that TNT is going to be selling ads based on drawing a 2.0 rating Uh, but they suggest that will include the replay. So it's actually a pretty realistic and achievable goal by everyone's estimation when you combine the two. Yeah, another reason for the replay, too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, Probably a a bigger reason
0: than anything else. So the debut edition of Monday Night Nitro, which Tony just said was one of the most important shows in the history of the business, happened at the Mall of America in Minnesota. Uh, Interestingly enough, the final edition of that so important piece of wrestling history happened in a hotel courtyard. Uh, if those bookends don't tell you a lot about the story of nitro, I don't know what will. Uh, let's talk about the mall of America. We mentioned earlier that the first plan was uh, an arena in Miami, but somehow we wind up in Minnesota instead. Do you remember why Minnesota was the choice uh, for a company that made its in you know, a home in the South? It seems like an odd choice.
1: I don't think so. I I think trying to, if you want it to be a national show, get out of the South for a little bit. I mean, I'm sure that's, uh, I'm sure that that same line has been used in the, uh, has been used in the offices of NASCAR many, many times. Uh, we were a Southern promotion. We wanted to be a national promotion. Let's take it away from the South, at least on our debut, And uh, why not the Mall of America? Uh, And in reality, hell, it worked. It really worked, I thought, that very first one. I mean, it would have been great to say, we're coming to you from the Forum in Los Angeles and showing a sellout there, or one of the big venues around the country. But I, but I uh, I think getting out of the South for your debut was the right move.
0: Bischoff wrote in his book, Uh, This was the very first night out of the box, and I wasn't sure I could put enough people in the arena to make it look good. The worst thing in the world that could have happened was to go into the Target Center in Minneapolis and only put 3,500 people in the arena. But holding it in the Mall of America, in the atrium, with three different levels of people looking down, kind of looked like the Roman Coliseum. That made it different and better. It worked. It just worked.
1: It did. It it really worked. Uh, And it was a unique Look, if you go back and, and look at it, people going up and down the escalators watching wrestling, the fans were into it. Uh, and it just it just worked.
0: Do you have any idea why it was the Mall of America? I do not. Can I freestyle a conspiracy theory for you? I, I love that. Go I love I love your bullshit. Go ahead. Before I get going here, Tony, I feel like I should state clearly for the record, uh, that I have nothing but great respect and admiration for hulk hogan i grew up a hulkamaniac i am only a wrestling fan because i was introduced to hulk hogan on television and when i had the opportunity to meet hulk hogan in real life he could not have been more polite respectful gracious he's an awesome dude i will forever be a hulk hogan fan however every now and again on the show we're going to examine the dirt this is the dirt um We're going to talk about some stuff that was public record, and then we're going to freestyle around it and try to piece together some stuff. And in the process, but I want to state clearly, I wasn't there. I have no direct knowledge of anything. I read newsletters. I read books. I read press releases. I'm piecing it together here. I'm not saying this happened. Can't state this clearly enough, but let's take a look. Let's beat it up. The very first Hulk Hogan restaurant, Pasta Mania, was in the Mall of America, and they were trying to make a big push, Mm -hmm. and uh, everything here starts to look and feel very Hogan-esque to me. If I was a wrestling fan who was a conspiracy theorist, because you've got a replay of nitro and his buffers for nitro there's reruns of thunder and paradise yeah. we're doing our debut show in a place where hogan has just opened his first franchise of Pastamania using his likeness right we're going to do a cameo in that show featuring hogan surrounded by kids in front of Pastamania. Uh, right saw that and we're going to make sure that when luger comes back Who's the the hot angle on the show? yeah, he is immediately programmed with Hulk Hogan. This feels right. like it has Hulk's fingerprints all over it, yeah it, I guess and
1: and also Hogan started in Minneapolis, yeah, yeah, uh well, you know, became Hulk Hogan in minneapolis uh yeah i, I that's uh, that's pretty good as far as uh conspiracy theory is concerned uh although. If you really wanted to promote the the Pasta Mania, you probably could have done a little bit better than that. Uh, remember, at Pasta Mania, you rule. You choose the sauce. You choose the pasta. You choose the
0: cheese. Is that I mean, not nothing but noodles, brother?
1: <laughs> yeah, but I remember that I ate at Pasta Mania like a day before. Uh, How was uh, it? Yeah, it was it was okay. If I recall, I didn't you know. Look at me. I haven't turned down much food. Uh, so, I, yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty good theory. I would think that's pretty good theory.
0: Uh, let me, let me ask something uncomfortable here. Oh, Lord. Kate Kennedy, you got anything for me? Kate Kennedy? Yeah. Nothing. Kate Kennedy was a woman who uh, sued Hulk Hogan okay. for sexual battery. And demanded a bunch of cash. Okay. And what time? She worked in public relations for pasta at the mall of America in Minnesota. Okay. So anyway, and Linda Hogan wrote about it in her book that when she went to the opening of pasta uh, she sees this woman and thinks it's odd how many questions she's asking Linda about her relationship with Hulk. What's it like being married to Hulk Hogan, blah, blah, blah. And then the day before Christmas, 1995, a courier arrives and serves Hogan. Hogan runs to the room, locks the door. A few days later, breaks the news after a few moody tense days. This is all Linda's testimony in her book. And eventually, Hogan has, Hogan has to go on the offense, and he actually uh, sues the lady Mm -hmm. and her attorney um that lawsuit from hogan's side starts on january 7th so he sued or realizes he's being sued on december 24th and he countersues on the 7th claiming extortion does any of this you think play into the rationale of why the hell we're doing the first nitro at the mall of america
1: this all happened before the nitro, right? You're done with the January before the nitro.
0: No, she, she's, she's files lawsuit. This is September of 95. Right. She filed lawsuit, uh, or he was served on Christmas Eve, 95. All right.
1: So and, I, I can't see why I can't see how you can draw a correlation to this. Okay. Why are you trying to say that we had it the mall of America?
0: Cause that's where drive? his side bitch was. What's that again? I think it was at the Mall of America because they wanted to get out of the South, like you said. Yeah. They needed a venue. They didn't think they could sell out an arena. Okay. Hogan had been spending time here for his pastamania thing, plowing his side bitch, Kate Kennedy. And you just made a face, but I'm just freestyling. I mean, these are public records. And he has All Bischoff's right, well, here, when- and he says, hey, man, we could hold it here. It would be good because she's public relations for the fucking mall. Right? Am I just making I just, all of this up?
1: Well, first of all, I, I tend to side, and I know there's a lot going on with with guys on the road and women and stuff like that. I understand that, but when they sue Hulk Hogan, I I tend to first, all of a sudden, my antennas are up and I feel extortion because he's a big star, he's got sure. a lot of money. I feel that. But I, 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 I may be a st- a stupid here, but I, I fail to see any correlation between the Kennedy girl and having it at the Mall of America.
0: She's in public relations at the Mall of America. Oh, to appease her? It makes her look good if it's here, brother. You'd okay. be doing me a solid, brother. Might okay. get to do butt stuff, brother.
1: Yeah. Okay, I got you. Whatever happened, to? and again, anytime there's a lawsuit, I completely turn it right off. Whatever happened to that lawsuit?
0: I mean, I imagine it went away.
1: Yeah. Okay. So in discovery, what did they what did they find out, Counselor? Was he really fucking this girl?
0: Well, let's run through this. He had to have a talk with his wife about it. If it was total bullshit, I don't know that he'd have to have a talk with her about it. Oh, yes, you would. Mm-mm. No, because Linda Linda wrote in her book that her spidey sense went off. She remembers the lady specifically. What she looked like, what she was wearing, the oddness, the weirdness of the conversation. Well, maybe maybe the girl was fishing for some dirt. Here's the deal. Hogan admits to Linda in Linda's book that Kennedy went to his hotel room and that while he said he didn't cheat on her, he did cheat on her. Whatever that means. I'm going to guess... He said, I didn't cheat on you, but I did cheat on you? Well, read Linda's book. It's in there. Okay. Okay. Anyway. I just need somebody to tell me how (laughs) nobody has connected all of these dots. This chick works in public relations at a fucking mall. TNT is having their huge debut show where Hogan has a restaurant, and this chick works at uh, one plus one. Yeah, okay. It it seems... Logical, it
1: seems absolutely logical. Uh, I'm going to agree with you. So let me ask that. you
0: this: I don't know <laughs> what sidebitches <laughs> were at Lavila for those. <laughs>
1: okay, you tell you tell me, Mr. Dirt Cheat. What have you heard?
0: Nothing. You- I'm just. I'm listen. Nobody's ever said any of this happened. Yeah. I'm just trying to uh, freestyle. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's that's pretty good. I mean, that's that. What you're saying is pretty logical. If you ask me, because. As a result of all this, or not as a result, but you're saying all this because Hogan had a tremendous influence on Eric Bischoff and the business, our business at that time. Sure. So that's why you, you're connecting all the dots.
0: Hogan's got a lot of influence with what's on TNT before Nitro, where the first Nitro's at, who's in the headline program there. In one of the spots on the, on the show, they're going to promote his restaurant. I It's mean,
1: all probably – probably all in his contract right
0: i mean i don't i don't know if it was contracted that he got to beat out the pr ladies at the buildings i mean i don't know not what i'm saying (laughs) you know what
1: Uh, i and let me say this to all of our uh, listeners as you know i'm back into this after being out of it for quite a while conrad thompson has uh has pulled me back into this business I was, <laughs> I I I never used to cuss at all.
0: Oh fuck you!
1: <laughs> the first time I ever said the word "fuck" that I can remember was our first broadcast. <laughs> now,
0: now he's like a lot of comma.
1: <laughs> now I can say that this fuck from Alabama has got me thinking about all this. I can't, oh, man. That's some good shit, Conrad. We got we ought to write a we ought to write a some sort of. Uh, show together
0: i think we're, we're on it guessing. right now
1: i think we are too
0: so let's talk it, about it, the, the,
1: the name of the show would be fucking
0: pasta mania <laughs> 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 oh my gosh <laughs> uh, can't wait till we talk about Main jeans burgers uh oh. the, the debut of nitro has an estimated two thousand fans at the mall of america in minneapolis and uh It was overall a huge success as far as making a mark the very first night out. And one one of the things they did is they tried to rely on things they knew had been successful. Uh, One of those, of course, was the Jushin Liger-Brian Pillman match. Uh, Dave Meltzer writes, Over Christmas week of 91, these two had, with possible exception of Flair and Steamboat, the best series of house show matches in the history of WCW, feeding over the now-defunct WCW light heavyweight title. The series climaxed with a pay-per-view match in Milwaukee that placed second in the 92 Match of the Year category. Shortly thereafter, Bill Watts took over control of WCW, dumped the division, and never used Liger to his potential after that. Liger, 31, who was generally considered the best worker and best flyer in the business during that early part of the decade, returned to action on August 11th after being out for nearly 11 months with a broken ankle. So this is their first time back Uh, putting Liger in a prominent position, and he's in the first match against Brian Pillman, and this is a proven winner from the times they've done it four years before. Um, Overall, Meltzer gave this match a a 3.5 star uh, rating. It went just under seven minutes. Uh, The finish comes when Liger goes for a German suplex, but Pillman reverses it into a cradle. Uh, He notes that it didn't appear the fans knew what to make of this match, but they enjoyed it. And he did note there were some missed spots and bad timing early, but it turned into a very good, albeit rushed, match. What did you think of the match, Tony?
1: I thought it was super. I thought it was a great way to begin our very first Nitro. And and like Meltzer wrote, uh, they had had some spectacular matches in the past. Two schools of thought here, Conrad. Uh, There is the, we'll call it the Japan or New Japan or All Japan, whatever, theory and the Bill Watts theory. Bill Watts dumped it, dumped the Cruiserweight division, because I thought he was not a guy who was high on a bunch of high spots. He was a guy who was high on working. Uh, if you like a bunch of high spots, you liked Jushin Liger. You liked what's going on in in uh, wrestling from Japan. Uh, if you liked a match with two great workers... Going at it, you would have uh, Ricky's... That was my wife barking, sorry. Uh, You liked uh, Ricky uh, Ricky Steamboat against Ric Flair. Uh, But I thought the match was very, very good. I thought uh, Liger was tremendous, although if you have a mask over your entire face, it takes away from your ability to sell, I think. Uh, It just takes something away from that. You know, to me, selling took not only uh, being able to uh, feel it and being able to react to it, but being able to react to it a great move or a great blow or something facially. He didn't have that. Uh, but be that as it may, he and Brian had a, another fine match. And it was a great start to the event. Make sense? Absolutely, it does. I'm, okay, let me say that I, I've never been a fan of a bunch of freaking high spots. Bam, 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 bam. Because if you just do a bunch of fucking high spots and you don't sell it, then the high spots don't mean shit. And that was my theory back long ago when the business was a little bit different than it is now.
0: Meltzer writes, Bischoff can't call a match, and both were worlds better than Steve McMichael, who came off as obnoxious and clueless at the same time, which is not the best combination for someone playing a babyface role. Uh, The sooner they drop him, the better... And it isn't going to be sooner. So, not well received debut here for Mongo. Uh, the second match on the card, of course, this is uh, seemingly uh, a failsafe here. Flare and Sting uh, once again after the very first Clash of the Champions. And obviously, the last Nitro, well, it was the first Nitro as well. They go to a no contest after about 11 and a half minutes. Uh, Meltzer writes this was the typical Flare Sting match everyone has seen, except. They also rushed because they didn't have as much time. He notes that Luger came out early and then left, and Arn Anderson came out later in the match with them teasing that he and Flair had made up and to make you think that he was going to help Flair. Of course, that's not how it happens. Uh, After uh, the ref calls for the bell, when uh, Anderson does a run-in, Anderson attacks Flair, and they have a brief brawl. He gives this three and a quarter stars. This is the first time we had really seen – in a prime time spot like this, Flair and Anderson not working together, but working opposite each other. And they would have a match at the fall brawl, 1995 pay-per-view. Were you happy to finally see Arn get this opportunity?
1: No question. Arn, Arn Anderson is one of my favorites of all time. And one of my close friends still in the business. We still stay in contact. Uh, Anybody who ever worked in this business business, and has an unkind thing to say about Arn Anderson is full of shit. And uh whatever he got in the business, uh he certainly deserved. You know, he had he's had some pretty serious neck injuries in his career, but everybody I think loves him, and I was thrilled to see him get this this chance. Let me say this. Let me react to a comment. Uh Melter said in his comment everybody has seen these two before. I'm not so sure everybody has seen them. Everybody in his world has seen it, but now we're going to something different, and we're probably bringing in new fans. Absolutely. So putting Flair and and Sting on there, oh, everybody! No, not everybody's seen it. This is something great to put on there, and maybe fans, maybe millions of fans, haven't seen this before. There's a, you know, and and I think Meltzer would agree with this. There's a there's a there's a cross section here, if I'm using the term correctly, of the people who follow Meltzer and the people who follow wrestling closely and of just the casual fan who have never seen this before. Yeah. So I think putting them on there was, was very good. And I think saying that everyone has seen it is, is an inaccurate term.
0: After this, um, flash Norton shows up out of nowhere and his name was never even mentioned until the angle was over. Norton goes face to face with McMichael, who, uh, Meltzer writes nearly succeeded in killing the entire angle. Ed Whalen style by laughing at someone who's supposed to be a killer heel. Yeah. Uh, Savage showed up to save the day in more ways than one. And after a commercial break, they announced that that match had been signed for next week. Norton and Savage. What did you think about this debut for Scott Norton and WCW?
1: Well, uh, now I'm going back and uh, again, doing some Monday, Monday, quarter- Monday morning quarterbacking here. Uh, I think that he, came across as uh, it wasn't well done because uh, the uh, the microphone hold on I got a bunch of dogs coming down of my studio here and my wife okay? yeah just stand over there and don't say a word please I love you I'll take you out I'll, you want me to shut up yeah, I'll, I'll take you out to dinner tonight yeah, really? yeah okay Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I only say that because she never cooks uh, that's a lot I'm that doing i I'm doing a freaking show here.
0: Yeah, your could go up too. Okay. I want
1: to cut. Okay, Lois Shimani does a run in. So, <laughs> so it. So anyway, uh, I even forgot where in the fuck I was.
0: Everybody did. Scott Norton, there's a microphone. He comes out. You had a Monday morning quarterback comment about the microphone with Norton.
1: Yeah. The, the Norton is screaming the microphone. Eric finally picks up the microphone because you can't hear what they're saying. Right. Uh, I'm not so sure Mongo laughing at Norton buries Norton because if Mongo's a tough guy, you know, it's like, ha, you know, I'm a tough guy, too. So I don't know if that really, uh, really got into hurt the angle or not. What I thought about that whole thing, go back and listen to it. It was funny because the macho man
0: called Scott Norton Les Thornton. I think he called him Flash Norton. I thought he said Les Thornton. You're old too, though. Match (laughs) number three on the show, Hulk Hogan beats Big Bubba Rogers to keep the WCW title in about seven minutes. Uh, After the match, of course, you know what happens. Uh, Foot to the face, leg drop, pin, boom, boom. Uh, After the match, the Dungeon of Doom attacks Hulk Hogan. This, to me, comes off really, really bad Considering that we just talked about how we're gonna to try to do less cartoon and more reality base. And now we've got Earthquake out here painted up like a fucking shark. Um Luger makes the save and uh then eventually Hogan and Luger uh bump backs and then turn around and go nose to nose. Savage and Sting try to break them up. They go to commercial, we come back, promo back and forth, and we set up a Hogan Luger confrontation in Miami uh, Meltzer rated this two and a quarter stars. What did you think of the match and the angle here? Match was
1: okay. I had seen uh, Hogan and uh, Bubba, or I had seen Hogan and Bubba when they were Hogan and Big Boss Man. But uh, That's back when I was in the WWE, so it wasn't one of their greater matches.
0: They had great right? matches in the WWE. What's that? Those matches in the WWE, the cage match circuit they did was outstanding. It was one of the
1: best, no yeah. question. And I was very fortunate to call one on MSN or Madison Square Garden Network, uh, one of those when they, they did the big superplex off the top of the cage uh, for that one. Uh, then they would redo it again on the Saturday night main event. Uh, but I didn't think it was one of the great matches, but I thought the end of it did a heck of a job of setting up the next week. Yeah. I thought it was very, very well done. And let me tell you one of the reasons it was well done. One of the most unsung heroes in all of wrestling is Mean Gene Okerlund. Uh, If you go back and look at that, his reaction, the way he set that up, the way he can play off these guys in the microphone, we talk about the great wrestling announcers being, rightfully so, Jim Ross, uh, Gordon Soley. But to me, one of the greatest wrestling announcers ever And certainly the greatest stick man ever was Mean Gene Okerlund. Sure. Uh, He made that sound as big as we wanted it to be. And there was no one better to hold that microphone than Gene. Uh, So I thought it it came off very, very well. It was a great way to set up the next week's event. And I think think a lot of that credit should go to Gene Okerlund for what he did that night as well. His voice was tremendous, as we know. But his reaction, the way he set it up, and the excitement that he portrayed when that match was signed, to me, helped sell that as well. And that's just me being a Gene Okerlund fan. And I'm, I've known that lousy fucking dirtbag for years, and I love him.
0: Well, so there now you he's go. A, uh, and
1: now he's, a, now he's a lousy, old fucking dirtbag.
0: What did you think of the, uh, the rating when it came out? Don't remember it. Uh, 2.5. Okay, so there you go. Of course, the first Nitro ran unopposed. There was no Monday Night Raw that week. Uh, they wouldn't go head-to-head until the second week, the September 11th edition. And that week, Nitro again drew a 2.5 rating to Monday Night Raw's 2.2. 2. So WCW has done the unthinkable. And in the first head-to-head Uh, They toppled the giant Monday Night Raw. Eric thought
1: that there was a a five rating that we could get, and he thought we could share it.
0: There you go. And uh, that was the story of the very first edition of Monday Nitro, and uh, we want to get you involved in next week's show. But how do we do that? Well, you go to our poll right now. It's over at WHW Monday on Twitter. You're going to see four topics there. Uh, we have heard you loud and clear. You want a little more Crockett. So that's what we've got for you. Four Crockett era topics. Uh, topic number one for next week's poll Starcade 83. Uh, Tony, this was your debut in professional wrestling. Am I right? Oh, you're right.
1: And I've looked at some of the footage of that. And boy, was I young, skinny, and pretty.
0: Woo! Well, things have changed, and the business certainly <laughs> has too. Starcade 83 is topic number one. Uh, It's also worth mentioning, this is when Dusty Rhodes was trying to first get a job kind of booking for Crockett. And so he puts together this card, and its success will determine whether or not he's kind of the man with the pencil moving forward. So that's not common knowledge at the time. Tony, I don't even think knew until he got there. But here we are, Starcade 83 is topic number one. Topic number two, and Tony, we've never touched on this off air black saturday from 1984 uh tell everybody what black saturday even is
1: black saturday if i remember uh is when vince uh,
0: vince took over the tbs time slot right talk talk this over kind of kind of the briscoes made some money and jim barnett
1: uh, made jim barnett made some money my boy
0: and uh, all of a sudden, people who are used to tuning in and seeing their wrestling, uh, their southern fried wrestling at 6.05 on TBS, well, that was different that day. And it was Black Saturday. Vince had taken over, and you were introduced to a whole new style of wrestling. And ultimately, he would sell it back to the Crockets, And the money and the profit he made in that resale, he would go to help fund his WrestleMania project. And the business changed forever. Uh, topic number three. Crockett buys the UWF. Bill Watts is looking to get out of the wrestling business. Crockett is looking to counteract all the explosive growth that Vince McMahon has had in New York. So in 1987, Watts is out. Crockett's in. What might we talk about if Crockett buying the UWF wins?
1: Uh, we would talk about how uh, Jimmy moved his the bases of his company from Charlotte to Dallas, how the family kind of split on that. Uh, and how, uh, it became a, it became a uh, money pit uh, for Jim Crockett promotions. It ultimately was one of the things that led to the, the downfall.
0: And last but certainly not least, the very first clash of the champions. This was counter-programming for the WWF's pay-per-view. Uh, they had a WrestleMania program, WrestleMania four in March of 1988 and dusty wanted to compete. So he decided we're going to give away a pay-per-view style card, and we're going to do it free, head-to-head with the WWF. And what should we put in our main event? The very first big-time Ric Flair Sting meeting ever. What might we talk about if Clash of the Champions, the very first one, wins, Tony? I think we'll talk about how there was a home run and how it was one of
1: the great live television shows that we had ever done and how it was right up against WrestleMania and talk about uh, me and Jr. being able to work together. And I think, uh, actually, uh, pat ourselves on the back. I think we called a hell of a match.
0: That card, uh, just to kind of run through it real fast, Mike Rotundo with Kevin Sullivan is taking on Jimmy Garvin and Precious. The Midnight Express of Eaton and Stan Lane with Jim Cornette are going to take on the Fantastics of Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers. The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, tag with Dusty Rhodes. And, of course, Paul Aylering is their second And they're facing the Powers of Pain, the Barbarian and Warlord, and Ivan Koloff with Paul Jones. That's a barbed wire match, by the way. And then we've got a tag team championship match with Arn and Tully, uh, placing their belts on the line against Lex Luger and Barry Windham. Uh, And then in the main event, of course, we've got Ric Flair and the young upstart, the man who's challenging for the greatest prize of them all, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship Sting. So those are your four topics. Tarcade 83, Black Saturday 84, Crockett buys the UWF in 87, and the first Clash of the Champions in 1988. If you had to pick which one of these you would like to cover, Tony, which one would that be?
1: I'd like to cover the first Starcade because I think it it was my uh, transition from a big-time, and I mean big-time wrestling fan in the mid-Atlantic days, to being able to work with my idols people that i looked up to and people i loved
0: that would be my choice uh and it's the very first starrcade it's worth mentioning uh yeah. the assassins are going to take on rufus r jones and bugsy mcgraw kevin sullivan and mark lewin are going to take on scott mcgee and johnny weaver with Abdul- one of the greatest blade jobs ever done Abdullah the butcher done. and carlos Colon. talk about blade jobs that's the next match Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater take on Youngblood and uh, McDaniel. Uh, Charlie Brown takes on the great Kabuki with Gary Hart. Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine in a dog collar match. Talk about something people still talk about today. Uh, Ricky Steamboat and Youngblood against the Briscoe brothers. Jack and Jerry, uh, kind of a big deal. They brought in Angelo Mosca as the special guest referee. And we had a special guest referee in Gene Kaniski for the main event. It's inside a steel cage. It's your champion, Harley Race, taking on the nature boy, Ric Flair. This is Greensboro, man. The very first Starcade, all the way back to the beginning, the granddaddy of them all. A flair for the gold. That's what Tony wants you to vote for. Go check it out right now. All four topics. Starcade 83, Black Saturday 84, Crockett buys the UWF 87, and of course, Clash of the Champions 88. Uh, You can follow Tony on Twitter. He'll block you very quickly at Tony Shavani 24. I will not. Probably. That's over. over. If you're on the block list and you want off the block list, buy a t-shirt at (laughs) ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. Tony is going to call and personally thank you for that that t-shirt order. And when you're on the phone with him, try to talk him into, you know, unblocking you. Good luck with that, though.
1: Yeah. I do want to say for the show, and I'm serious about this, uh, I apologize for my wife. Uh, last last week, I kind of set up a little run-in that she would do, okay? And now she's out of freaking control. I had no idea she was gonna come down here to the office and say something. I apologize for her uh, doing that.
0: T- Tony, you don't need to apologize. Lois is more over the knee. Really? Oh, yeah, people are yeah. all about it. Really? They're all about her. then i I,
1: I suggest I suggest they marry her and see what it's like for like two weeks.
0: Um, please buy a t-shirt. Tony Shavani yeah. needs it. He's uh he's going to have some new wedding experiences uh expenses Ooh. and if he keeps this up maybe some divorce expenses too.
1: nah, you no. Hell, we've been mar- we've been married going on 36 years. We're not going to we're not going to divorce. You know, you could no you killed no one else a guy. could have that woman, buddy. No you, one else and she knows it. So we're we're married for life.
0: You could have killed a guy and been paroled by now. Just throwing it out there. Well, uh, it's that time of the show, Tony. It is? What are we out of? Okay. We are desperately out of time.
1: Comrades, got a cheer. The rule of NLW Radio never stops.